Coming up, a wide-ranging conversation with anthropologist Christine Jeske about crises and how to think about them theologically and socially. After the music. Welcome to the Upwards Podcast, an initiative of Upper House on the campus of University of Wisconsin-Madison. Through conversations with thinkers, scholars, and leaders, we explore the life of the mind and the questions of the soul to enrich our university, our community, and the church. Hello, and welcome back to the podcast. I'm Dan, your host, and excited to be bringing you another stimulating conversation with someone here from our Upper House community. So it's a common observation, I'm sure you've made it, that since 2020, our society has been in the state of multiple crises, ranging from social unrest to the pandemic. And we can hear the language of crisis from our political and institutional leaders, our pastors, even our family members. Yet, what do we mean by crisis? What defines it? And how should we think about it theologically? So that's the setup for our conversation. We're delighted to share with you that we'll be talking today with Christine Jeske about a recent article she wrote titled, aptly, What is a Crisis? Christine walks through her topology of crisis and links it to both a biblical understanding of the term and to contemporary issues. And she's talking with Executive Director of Upper House, John Terrell, who offers some of his own insights about what it means to respond to crises in ways that honor God and our fellow human beings. Now, Christine is actually our first recurring guest on the podcast. She appeared all the way back on episode eight, back in February of 2021, to talk about her recent book, The Laziness Myth. So go ahead and check that out if you're interested. Linked in the show notes. Christine Jeske is also an associate professor of cultural anthropology at Wheaton College in Wheaton, Illinois. She discusses a bit about this in the conversation about the field of anthropology and its unique contributions to understanding the world. Christine's previous work has been published widely. Most recently, she's the author of uh, the book, The Laziness Myth, Narratives of Work and the Good Life in South Africa by Cornell Press. And the article that she talks about today, which deals with crisis, is from a new volume by Nav Press titled, When the Universe Cracks, Living as God's People in Times of Crisis. And we'll have links to both uh, her book and this collected volume in the show notes. A couple more facts about Christine that make her especially interesting to us at Upper House. She received her PhD from UW-Madison and is also part of an advisory council we have here at Upper House for our Student Fellows Program. So uh, there's many other things to share about Christine. John and her dive into her globe-spanning work near the front end of the conversation. So I'll leave that those details and that story for them. As always, we're eager to hear your thoughts and questions about the podcast and about our conversations. If you feel so inclined, send a message to podcast at slbrownfoundation.org. With that, here's an Upwards conversation with John Terrell and Christine Jeske. Well, Christine, it's great to have you with us today. Super excited for this conversation. Yeah, it's great to be here. Yeah, thanks for thanks for being a part of this. I want to uh, start just um, going way back. I'd love to hear a little bit about your spiritual context 
growing up? What was it like in your family, um, your home, your neighborhood? Tell us where you grew up and what it was like from a, a spiritual perspective. Yeah, I grew up in a Christian family. Parents were wonderful, one sibling. And uh, I feel like in so many ways, we were just the picture of uh, a happy Christian family. And at the same time, uh, I look back on that and I realize that one of the things that led me to the field that I ended up in is that on the surface, it did look so rosy. And uh, But beneath the surface, by high school, I was starting to see that there were things in my family that were happening that people on the outside didn't know. Uh, one was that uh, there's a lot of alcoholism in my extended family and we were caring for some relatives going through that. And uh, another story that was really foundational for me is that um, if we go back, so my mom uh, grew up in a family with five children and she had a sister who was around her age. The two of them uh, both grew up in small town, Wisconsin, went off to college at the University of Wisconsin, both fell in love and both married men who would later become professors and uh, both had daughters around the same time, so myself and my cousin. And my cousin and I were good friends growing up. But here's the thing. Um, my uncle is black and my uh, dad is white. So I am white and my cousin gets racialized as black, which wasn't a thing that we talked about growing up. But when I was in high school, again, we're just leading these parallel lives. And um, ironically, we both uh, had our first crushes probably in high school, both with guys with the same name I just put together recently. Um, and, you know, mine didn't really go anywhere. I went off to college after high school. She, meanwhile, um, got pregnant with uh, this guy and had a baby just before high school. And I met that father of her child on her graduation day. And that night, this young man, who uh, is a black man, was shot and killed. Mm. And that incident, I think, was a kind of shattering in my life. And I realized there's something going on here that we're not talking about, that we can have, you know, from generations back, so much commonality in our lives. And one of the biggest factors that is different in our lives is that she gets racialized as black and I get racialized as white and our friend groups are different. And this was kind of a wake up call to we have really different lives going on here. And so um, that was always kind of beneath the surface is these things about society and how it works that were not talked about. And uh, that sent me investigating those things. Yeah, wow. Powerful story. I want to circle back. We'll explore a little bit more about um, your movement into the field and how you got excited as you progressed through your, your educational programs. Tell me just a little bit more about um, how you... Um, lived out your spirituality in your early life? Were you churchgoers? Did you have other kinds of things that were part of the rituals that your family celebrated? Um, yeah, we were um, churchgoers, and um, my parents were really great at, at discipling us. Uh, we you know, did Bible studies at home, which always seemed awkward when I was a child, but I look back on them and realize that it was foundational. Uh, my church family was really supportive. I, I think I lived... Uh, in the church as a second home. I remember going there after school for children's choir and uh, other after-school activities, and I, I knew every in and out of that building and felt like I was at home there. Uh, went to church camps and um, had important conversations and, and learning there, too. 
I've been thinking and writing a lot on on place, you know, the role that place has in our lives. I'm sure as an anthropologist you think about that, but I've I've thought a lot about some of the early church environments and the church building and the kind of impact that had on me. And I know it really, um, it really um, leaves an impression on us, I think, that really lasts a lifetime. So thanks for sharing a little bit more about that. When I think of famous anthropologists, uh, an eclectic list of names come to mind. I think of Zora Neale Hurston, uh, Margaret Mead, Paul Farmer, Jane Goodall, and, they, and these may not even be the, the names that are prominent in the field that you, that you discuss or in your particular um, area of research. But I wonder if you could, for our listeners, just define or describe anthropology um, yeah. in layman's terms, and then we'll talk a little bit about the unique role that anthropology plays within the broad portfolio of the academy. That's a question I get a lot. Even my students who sign up for anthropology classes often don't know what they're getting into. Part of it is that anthropology has four subfields, including cultural anthropology, which is what I do, and physical anthropology or biological anthropology, which is somebody like Jane Goodall, and then linguistics and archaeology, which are all quite separate. I don't study all of them. And uh, it comes down to the history of the discipline and emerged in the late 1800s as its own discipline and early 1900s, and around the same time as sociology. So we're very similar to sociology. One of the differences is that when it began, it was a time that anthropologists were looking to understand, quote, the other. And so generally non-Western societies, whereas sociology was focusing more on Western society. As time has gone on, those have merged. So I do research both in South Africa and here in Madison, Wisconsin, and anthropologists do research all over One way to maybe understand how anthropology works is one of the foundational concepts that sociology and anthropology both build on is that we are profoundly affected by society around us. And at the same time, we often don't recognize how that is happening. Mm -hmm. And so what we do is try to understand how society is shaping our lives and vice versa, how we as individuals are shaping society, our culture the social structures around us. And we tend to say, you know, by recognizing what's happening there, we have the potential to change society in ways we wouldn't if we didn't stop and pay attention to it. So we talk about developing the sociological imagination of seeing how our society shapes us. And I think it's really, as a Christian, I think it's tied to a prophetic role. If we want to understand what God is doing in our world, we have to be able to understand how society works around us. So how do anthropologists do that? I, I, do they often they embed themselves within communities? I, I know I've heard the term ethnography. Um, talk about that process. What would be a typical research project or, or process for an anthropologist? Right. So that's another difference between us and a lot of disciplines, including most sociologists, though not all, is that we do qualitative research. And you mentioned ethnography, so it's usually called ethnography, meaning the study of culture. And if you think about how do you understand how culture works, it's pretty hard to uh, count a lot of things and really understand culture. It's not a quantitative question that you're usually answering in, in anthropology. So For example, when I uh, wrote my first anthropology book, which is called The Laziness Myth, I was living in South Africa and trying to understand how the history of apartheid and racism in South Africa affected people's work environments, what they wanted out of work, and 
I was asking this question of what is the good life? What does it have to do with work? And how does that affect people's decisions and work? And that's a question that you really can get at by asking people and watching people better than anything else. And so research looks like hanging out with people. A lot of times it's very intentional hanging out, asking them questions, paying attention, taking notes afterward, uh, thinking about whose voices are not often heard and, and going to places where you can hear those voices and interact with their lives. How do you um, remove yourself from that process? Um, are you able to bring some of your own experiences into the process of, of learning how a culture operates? Or, or do you try to check that at the door, so to speak, and, and really try to enter into, enter into the conversation and relationship in a neutral format? That's a great question, and that's something that our discipline has wrestled with a lot and gone to a more philosophical uh, level in trying to answer this question, too. So early in the discipline, it had this kind of empirical, objective view of science, of trying to say Mm -hmm. we are like any other science. We're collecting data. We analyze our data. We come up with truth Mm -hmm. in that way. Mm -hmm. And over time, there's more and more realization that the researcher themselves is always affecting what you get as an outcome. And this is true in any science, but we're very aware of it because we're just physically there having these conversations with people, you know, might be sitting in someone's living room crying with them. And so how do you uh, turn that into objective data? You can't in some sense. So there's a mix between trying to find patterns and collect data in a systematic way, but also this recognition that you are also a part of the data. Uh, So some projects have more of uh, an autoethnography piece to them also. You mentioned Zora Neale Hurston was famous for doing that. Her first project was uh, going back to Florida where she grew up and collecting stories from her own community. But many people have done that since as well. Well, it just seems like I've just, you know, you sort of pay attention to the bestseller books and what's really um, striking interest on the nonfiction List And it seems like a lot of anthropologists have been really um, emerging as really significant authors. Maybe that's been all along, and I'm just starting to pay attention. Um, but it feels like one of those fields that's in a lot of ways really in the limelight these days. I think um, I'm around a lot of historians here at Upper House, and so I pay more attention to the work of historians. But it feels like anthropologists, sociologists, historians have a unique invaluable um, offering at this moment in our history. I hope that is true. I sometimes say that PR for anthropologists is not their strong suit. And so I think a lot of anthropology goes unnoticed in the popular sphere, but I think there's a lot to offer, which actually gets to how this book about crisis got started that uh, was a part of this conversation. So I was Uh, teaching anthropology classes during the pandemic and having conversation after conversation with students who are saying, this class helps me understand what is happening in this pandemic. And no one seems to know this. These theories that we're covering in our class are explaining how a pandemic unfolds. And so I was excited when I got this offer to contribute to this book because I thought, I actually have some things that are just very basic to even intro to anthropology classes that are really helpful in times like this where society around us is very clearly affecting our lives. <laughs> I think that's the case for sure. Let I want to come back to that here in just a minute, but let me just talk a little bit or interact with you a bit around your, your training. Um, I know you have three degrees from UW-Madison. 
You have a BA in English and piano, an MA in cultural anthropology, and a PhD in cultural anthropology. And then you have an MBA from Eastern University. It's all over, right? Yeah, well, no, it's, <laughs> it, it, it makes sense to me. And then you've traveled, I know, and lived overseas extensively in Nicaragua, China, and South Africa. So I'm just curious, how did all of these experiences, your training, lead you, help you sort of move into the space that you find yourself in today as a researcher? I definitely have a vocational path that is a winding journey. I actually started here at UW-Madison as a undergrad and started out majoring in, I think, physics and then uh, possibly journalism <laughs> changed around too. So I feel like I've covered a lot, a lot of different majors and disciplines through the years, and I'm grateful for that because it was a journey I couldn't have predicted ahead of time, but it was a good one. So... At the University of Wisconsin, like you said, I majored, finally, after much wandering, in English and piano. But part of what I liked about that was it allowed me to take a lot of electives. And I took the famous, at the time, class, African Storyteller, and also some classes on African history, a Latin American economics class, a class on malnutrition and world hunger. And these all started to feel like kind of the center of what God was calling me to after college. I also got married right after college to my husband, who was a Spanish major with a religious studies minor. And the one thing we thought was a kind of starting point was we both spoke some Spanish and both had an interest in inequality and finding out what God had to say about that. We look back and say, in a sense, what we were trying to figure out is what did God mean when he said, blessed are you who are poor? And... We had a wonderful mentor who told us, well, we asked this mentor, what can we do outside the United States with some Spanish-speaking abilities? And that mentor wisely told us, nothing. You can't do anything. (laughs) You're a couple of college grads with no skills, but you can listen and you can learn. And through that mentor and some other connections, we ended up getting invited to live in a village in Nicaragua not with an organization. I don't recommend that, but it was a formative, formative experience for both of us and lived in this village in Nicaragua that was poor at the beginning of the year, but continued to get poorer. And um, so watching life unfold there without a solution for it was formative. Um, And I think that ability to listen and watch and trust that God is working even when I'm not able to solve these problems is in a way what what eventually much later drew me to anthropology. How does the MBA tie in? What what prompted that? Did that come at the end of the cycle or was that early on? It came in the middle. In the middle. Yeah. So I can tell you one of the stories of what happened in Nicaragua. It was a village that got probably over half their income from the year through growing coffee as a cooperative that everybody in the village was a part of. And this was in 2000 to 2001, and the world coffee price dropped to the lowest it had been in 50 years. And the village not only would have gotten very little for their coffee, they actually lost their buyer for their coffee. And so we watched this whole village just lose half their income. And not only that, but soon after they would have normally got their income, Uh, The rainy season would have started. They would be planting beans, which was another source of income, and the rainy season didn't come. So it was a drought, 
and people didn't have half their income. So we watched families go from having you know, a very small amount of money to literally no money in their homes. The whole village just started running out of money. They couldn't restock the stores. And so watching that unfold really forced us to ask questions of what can be done about this. I look back on the letters we were sending home, and it was just this desperation of asking, does anybody know what you can do about poverty? Is there any solution out there? Because it just felt like nothing was going to solve this. And so we found out about this MBA program through Eastern University that at the time had a partnership with an organization in China. And so we could teach English in China and do an MBA at the same time in international development. And both my husband and I did it, which is a great fit for that time. Wonderful. Okay, so that makes sense. And and that I imagine that's really contributed to your work as an anthropologist as well, giving you a, a little bit of a different dimension. The um, So I know how you got to China. How about South Africa? So we finished uh, the MBA, and part of that training included a couple of classes on business development and microfinance. This was in 2005, and microfinance was just hot on the scene in the development world. And we found out an, about an organization that was doing a pilot project in South Africa. On the board of advisors for the organization was Muhammad Yunus, who won the Nobel Prize the following year as we were starting this pilot project. And we both, my husband and I, got asked to direct this pilot microfinance organization in South Africa. And naively, we said yes. And <laughs> Went to South Africa and watched for two years and worked very hard to try to make it work, and it didn't work. And so this pilot project, we closed down in South Africa after two years. But watching that happen was part of what then propelled me to want to get a PhD, because I wanted to understand why did that fail, and why were people explaining the failure in the ways that they were. Interesting. Makes a lot of sense. And you really did hit, you hit a lot of these moments at a time when they were in significant uptick. So I think about the microenterprise development surge that took place about that time. And I know uh, Mohammed Yunus and Grameen Bank had a big part to play in really expanding the work of microfinance around the world. And so you were, you were, it was an interesting time to observe all that. It was. And there's a lot of things about microfinance that are great, don't get me wrong, but what our organization was trying to do was sort of take a postage stamp of something that had worked really well in Bangladesh and make it work in rural South Africa. And I saw the importance of culture. And even in this economic development MBA, I learned a lot of things, but one of the underlying factors that wasn't talked about in depth was the difference that culture makes and the difference that history makes and setting. And so anthropology was something I discovered later had answers or at least people studying those kinds of questions. Well, let's jump into the book. Um, I really enjoyed this book. Um, This is a NAV Press book, uh, 2021, uh, When the University Cracks and the subtitle... When the Universe Cracks. I'm sorry, when the... (laughs) You can tell where my mind is when the university cracks. It's cracking, too. I I can't tell you about that, though. It has its own set of problems. When the universe cracks. uh, Thank you. Living as God's people in times of crisis. You started to get into this. I thought it was really helpful. Talk a little bit more about your um, invitation into the project. And did you have a chance to meet some of the other authors? Um, and, And then in your view, who is the book for? So I got invited to write this book because 
from my understanding, they had seen an article that I wrote for Christianity Today just before that. So I can back up and say how I wrote that article, which was that I was teaching these anthropology classes as the pandemic got started. And in, in particular, one class that was all seniors who had studied anthropology, you know, for their four years. And every time we'd meet as a class, we'd say, wow, this theory that we covered in our class two years ago now, that helps me understand what's going on now. And this theory helps me understand this. And uh, and these students again and again were saying, I have insights into how a pandemic works that people around me don't necessarily know. And I started just taking notes and feeling like, I want to put these out there somehow so that uh, more people know about them because not very many people take anthropology classes or even necessarily know what the discipline was. And so I wrote an article for Christianity Today that was how uh, our culture in the United States in particular, and myself writing as a middle-class white woman, thinking about how we're ill-prepared for this pandemic, how it hits us hard. It also stemmed out of having some conversations with friends I knew who were living outside the United States, and they were saying things like, well, this is not really that different from things we've dealt with before. We've gone through a lot of crises and realizing that we in America weren't necessarily prepared in the same ways. We had a lot of preparation in some ways, but uh, crisis is not necessarily something we're used to. And we'll put this in the show notes, um, but the article is from May 7th, 2020. So just a few months after the pandemic really started, the title of the article is, This Pandemic Hits Americans Where We're Spiritually Weak. And I would commend that um, commend this article, Christine's article, to you. It's a it's really a helpful accompanying piece to the chapter. So your chapter is titled "What Is a Crisis?" and it frames the book. It's the first chapter in the book. How do you define and describe crisis uh, in the chapter? So I was grateful to discover a quote from a book that. Uh, is by Lee Ann Hoff called People in Crisis. She's a psychologist. And I just actually stumbled upon it when I was looking for a good definition of crisis. But if I can just read for mm -hmm, you please. this quote, she says, stress is not crisis. Stress is tension, strain, or pressure. Predicament is not crisis either. Predicament is a condition or situation that is unpleasant, dangerous, or embarrassing. Emergency is not crisis. Emergency is an unforeseen combination of circumstances that calls for immediate action, often with life or death implications. Finally, crisis is not emotional or mental stress. Crisis may be defined as a serious occasion or turning point presenting both danger and opportunity. And I love that definition because that's what I really see happens from a spiritual level as well with a crisis is you have danger and you have opportunity. Another quote that isn't in this book, but I came upon it recently, that's from an anthropologist named Clifford Geertz, one of the well-known anthropologists you may have heard of out there. And he's an anthropologist who's really interested in how people make meaning. There's this idea that what we do as humans is not just go through the actions of our life, but what's very important is how we make meaning of those. And we spend a lot of our energy in this. You know, we read the news to try to understand what, what is happening. And when this pandemic hit, especially, 
if you I know that at least for me, I was hungry for news. Like we got a subscription to a newspaper and we never had that in our house before. And we're just, you know, gobbling up every news story and every article we can find to try to make sense of what's going on. And Clifford Geertz had this great quote that said, it's not so much that we fear new things to try to interpret. It's that we fear the uninterpretable. And I think a crisis at its, at its foundational level is something that's uninterpretable to us. Yeah, there's no roadmap per yeah. se. So you talk about in this chapter three elements of a crisis. Talk about upheaval, revelation, and opportunity. I wonder if you could walk us through each of those stages. So the three things, uh, the first one is that it is a, a breaking or a cracking or a shattering kind of moment. And uh, the title of this book, When the Universe Cracks, comes from a quote from Colette Pichon Battle, who was from New Orleans and affected by Hurricane Katrina. And she writes, looking back at that crisis, she says it was a crack in the universe to come home and see the destruction of Katrina. And so I think a a crisis begins where there's something that shatters that we're used to, and not just at a personal level, but across society, something broke that we're used to working. And then the second piece is revealing or apocalypse. And the word apocalypse, as many of us have learned in the last few years, doesn't have to to do with the end of the world, like it's often used in Christian circles, but it has to do with revealing. It's the word for revelation, you know, so it's a, it's a time when something is revealed to us. We can see something more clearly in a crisis. And then out of that comes opportunity. So what we do in response to the apocalypse moment is uh, a possibility and opportunity. Yeah. And your chapter really beautifully walks through these three stages. And you're writing about COVID largely, um, or, or that's the backdrop, I think, and, and a lot of the racial tension and everything else that happened in 2020 and into 2021. Are there different ways to think about this if it's an individual crisis versus a communal crisis? Or would the way that you frame this apply? So you, ha- you, know, you, you're, you go to the doctor and you receive a, news that you have cancer. You know, that's, a, that's an individual crisis you walk out of the hospital and it's sunny and everybody else is going about their day, right? And they don't have that same news that you have. How, as an anthropologist, um, I'm just curious if there are differences, and this is down in the weeds, but are there differences with individual crises compared to the kinds of communal challenges or crises that we can face and faced, especially in 2020? I think there certainly are differences, but there's also a lot of similarities. And we tried to write this book in a way that it would be applicable to both personal and group community-wide crises. Obviously, all of us, as we're writing this, are so steeped in COVID that it's hard to think about anything else. But there's a lot of examples in the book, too, that are at more of a personal level or other kinds of issues the way I described the shattering is kind of like, you know, most of our lives we have roads that we follow and there's like rules of how we're supposed to behave and we know what those rules are. It's like, 
you drive down the road, you know that when there's a stop sign, you stop. When there's a stoplight, you wait for it to turn green. We know the rules. And a crisis is kind of like all of a sudden you show up and the road is gone. And you're like, do I drive through the field? Do I stop altogether and walk? And you don't even have the rules in front of you. So that can happen at a personal level. But I think it's uh, it's just magnified when it's not just you, it's the people around you as well. And we together collectively are trying to figure out what to do. But I think even in a personal crisis, part of what you need to do is is turn to the people around you and find ways to make meaning and find your path through that with other people. So I don't think there's anything that's ever purely individual. That's part of what anthropologists do too, right? To say there's always a social level to what we go through. Yeah, and I think that's a good point because the, the other authors, your co-authors do write out of their experiences. And there is this backdrop, but they're writing out of all kinds of experiences, um, individual and, and collective. So um, I think that's really helpful. Let's talk about um, the past couple years um, and the, the layering of multiple crises. Um, and I'm going to ask you to, and this is, I'm going to ask you unfairly, um, to play the role of a prophet and a pastor. What opportunities do you see in this season, especially opportunities for the church? That's a great question, and it's a heavy one, right, to try to play the role of a prophet. I was just reading Second Kings about the story of Josiah and the uncovering of the law and his response to it. I never actually noticed this, but he asked the priests to do something about this law, and they turned to a prophetess named Huldah. Mm. I thought, I've never known about Huldah. I actually thought, here's one of those underappreciated, underutilized Christian women's names. There are not a lot of little girls named Hulda running around, but maybe no, there no. should be because she's awesome. And so these priests show up and ask Hulda, what should we do? And her response is tough. And I think it's actually appropriate, maybe in a way for where we're at in the United States and the world. And, you know, what, what happens in a crisis, she says, um, God says, I'm going to bring disaster. And it's not she doesn't pull any punches. She says, people have forsaken God. And when your heart is not responsive, uh, it's going to be bad. And that's heavy. But then immediately after that, she says, also go tell the king because he repented and tore his robes and wept and kind of had this public display of humility and, and made choices of repentance. She says, God has heard Josiah, and the disaster will be lessened. It will basically not affect you in your lifetime. Now, I want to be clear that many disasters are not just about repentance. I want to, you know, not pretend that COVID-19 happened because of somebody's sin in a direct way. But at the same time, there's this element with every crisis that we have to respond. And we can respond in fearfulness and denial and ways that are unproductive but we can also respond in ways that turn to God deep, more deeply, whatever the cause of the crisis is. Um, I know for me in COVID-19, actually, one of the things that was a wake-up call for me was my husband works for InterVarsity. He was on this team that was the COVID response team, and they were trying to plan, how do we do this national 
large group that we're going to broadcast. And, you know, this is back when we're like, what is Zoom? What, what, you know, what are we supposed to use? Skype? What is the platform that's even going to do this? And I got to log in for one of these that thousands of people logged in for. And there's music and there's prayer. And it was one of those many moments we can probably remember where despite everything, in the midst of this place of no road mapping, we're turning to prayer. And I have this image that comes to mind sometimes that a crisis is kind of like if you're in the ocean and there's these waves that just crash over you, you can stand there and the wave will like knock you down or go over your head and, you know, it'll, it'll blow you over. But I think in crisis, we also have prayer as a tool we go to, which is kind of like the surfboard in a crisis. Like you get up on top of that wave and you ride it. Um, And it's not to say you don't, suffer and you don't feel the effects of the crisis, but you have a different perspective in it. I want to go to, uh, I want to kind of probe that a little bit. You're this, I asked you really about response. How do we respond to the opportunity? And you, and you've talked about repentance and just a, a, a kind of a deep sorrow that, that comes from, um, recognizing that, the world is broken and that we may have contributed to its brokenness, how important that is for us to get in touch with the crisis. So we might feel the crisis um, emotionally. You know, there's a terrible storm, there's a pandemic, there's something that is um, front and center. But then there is a period after the crisis where things try to return to normal. And that there's an opportunity for revelation at that stage. And I think sometimes, you know, I, I'm thinking about our situation. There can be conflicting reports as to the degree of the crisis. Do we have systemic injustice and racism? Do we not? Is the pandemic real? Is it not? And depending on how we receive that news, it it can determine how we move into an opportunity, you know, move into our season of opportunity response. So I'm just curious, as an anthropologist, do you have some ways for us, other than we need good journalists, um, and we do need good journalists and others that help us navigate this, scientists and others, that. but do you have some ideas for how we might spend time sorting through that middle stage of revelation? So one of the things that I noticed happening during the pandemic and since is something that I study a lot as anthropologists, which is what people's narratives are of how they approach the good life. What is it that we can do to approach the good life? Is there anything we can do? Is it just fate that we either get it or we don't? What is the moral way to achieve the good life? And I think one of the things that's revealed in a pandemic is what we assume is going to achieve the good life for us. So in this pandemic, for example, it's of a medical nature. And so one of the things we realize is that we trust biomedicine. We love medicine. We love technology. And as an anthropologist, we study, there's a whole culture behind how we think about what will heal us and what we trust. And there's authority behind that that we turn to, but we don't all agree. You know, we have different authorities of what we go to when it terms to when it comes to like deciding what we should do about our health. And so one of the things that was revealed is who we trust and who we don't trust. And these, you know, little bitty fissures between who trusts whom just got wider and wider in the last year. Yes. 
but even just the idea at a deeper level, there's something that affects a lot of the West, which is the uh, the narrative of the good life, which people have called the redemptive self narrative, which is the idea that if you have some kind of problem in your life, you can overcome it. You know, just try harder and uh, just work at it, be persevering, and you'll achieve it. And this is a narrative that's, you know, people trace it to uh, a Western colonial mindset of, you know, there's always land that you can take over. Honestly, there's people you can enslave, there's people you can hire, and things will go well for you. And we have this history, my, you know, speaking as myself, a white person, I am the descendant of a history of people who have assumed that things will go well for us. And one of the things that a crisis reveals is that it won't always go well for me and that it doesn't go well for everybody. And so we had this opportunity to look around and see, look, the disparities in healthcare are going to hit people even harder, uh, or they're, they're going to widen during this this crisis. And I think it's no uh, coincidence that in this time of you know watching Breonna Taylor and George Floyd's death that a lot of people were ready to pay attention in a way that they weren't because I think there's this kind of shattering that had happened for some people. Uh, for other people, there was this shattering of your sort of norms and protective uh, outer coating that uh, caused people to just like, you know, rebuild that shell around you even more forcefully. <laughs> like, I don't want to hear about it. I don't want to be confronted. Uh, I'm already done being shattered. Like, please don't confront me with anything else. But for some people, I think there was a softening and, and also a willingness to to become active, to change society. Yeah, that's very helpful. Thank you. Let's talk a little bit about personal crisis. Many listeners, maybe all of us, have gone through a crisis at some point in our lives. Um, as an anthropologist, educator, and Christ follower, what principles or advice can you offer someone who now finds themselves uh, finds themselves in such a season? Thinking about this, I know for me, one of the epiphanies that I had about crisis happened a number of years ago when I was living in South Africa. I was working for a seminary, and this was after the nonprofit organization we worked for had closed, and we worked for this seminary, and it was becoming apparent that this seminary might also close through a number of factors, basically a funding crisis. And it was not only that the the seminary itself was facing a financial crisis, this was affecting individual students because a lot of students had come there on scholarships and they were finding out that their scholarships were not secure anymore. And we were doing everything we could to try to raise money and solve the financial crisis. And for my husband and I, this meant a lot of writing letters and looking for grants that we could apply for. But I remember one day there was a prayer meeting and students and faculty both, we were some of the only uh, non-African people at the seminary. So it was students from South Africa, but also Congolese refugees and Zambian and Malawian and Zimbabwean. And people from all over Africa had come to the seminary. And we had this prayer meeting together. And as is common in South Africa and a lot of the world, it was this time of prayer where everyone's just speaking out loud at the same time. And... I remember hitting this point where I just realized I'd run out of words to say. I didn't know how to ask anything else. And I realized I'd run out of hope. I didn't have any way of really calling to God anymore because I didn't 
feel like there was any hope anymore. And I just went silent and started listening to the people around me and thinking about what they were saying and where it was coming from and seeing, you know, here's somebody who left their country because it was at war. Here's somebody whose child is facing a congenital heart disorder that they can't operate on because they have no money. Here's somebody whose kids have been out of school for a year because they have no money for school fees. Here's somebody who, you know, scrounged for years to try to make it to this place, and now they've run out of money for their scholarship, and they're going to have to drop out of college. And they're the only person in their village who's ever gone to college. And, you know, just these story after story of people around me and realizing they have a hope that I don't have. What I realized in this moment is that we need to find a deeper hope. We need to know where our hope comes from. And like I said, this redemptive self-narrative gives us this lie of a hope that I think often we go through our lives relying on. And it's a hope that's kind of in technology or, well, things have usually gone well before, or I have a lot of good friends, or I have a savings account. And it's, you know, it's only one level beneath the surface of what we're hoping in. And we need to be able to trace that back and back and back. And eventually, if it doesn't get back to Christ has died and risen again, there's not a foundation behind it. And so I'm really interested in you know, how do we find that kind of a radical hope? How do we unlearn the kinds of shallow, flabby hope that we have built a lot of our lives on and find the hope that is just raw and deep and rugged? Yeah, that's, that's, really, that's really helpful. I know Richard Rohr talks about you know, the heroic journey and the way that that can be a lie and just really um, put us on a, on a path. I mean, it is part of building that container in the first part of life that uh, and yet we, we're not uh, just about building the container. We're about filling it, right, and, and finding greater meaning. I'm curious. You're, you're really rooting a lot of your, um, your passion. I'm hearing a lot of your passion around this kind of deep connection to our deepest spiritual roots in Christ. And I'm wondering how you do that in your field. Um, does your field... Um, allow you to move in those directions? Or, or, or maybe your field just allows you to respond to the communities and interact with the communities that you're researching. But I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the currents that you find in your field broadly and how, um, how it's open or not as open to deep spiritual um, moorings. In some ways, I'm certainly an anomaly, having written a book for Moody Press and InterVarsity Press and then an academic press, Cornell Press. In anthropology, there's very few role models that I can find out there who are in that kind of world with anthropology. Anthropology is an interesting discipline, though, because in its earliest roots, it was started by some people who almost took as their goal to try to disprove religion. And then through the 20th century, there were examples of people who even through doing fieldwork themselves, became Christians. And there were, uh, Victor and Edith Turner are an, are an example of um, some Christian anthropologists who are very highly respected in their field. And you can find these subtle ways that Christianity affects their writing. I guess I could go back also to what I said earlier, which is that this process of trying to see what is happening in society, and by uncovering that, the word we use in anthropology sometimes is hegemony, which is something that is so taken for granted, so normalized, that we don't even see it or question it anymore. And what we're constantly doing 
as social scientists is trying to recognize where are the hegemonies, where are the things that we have not thought to question and questioning them. And that, like I said earlier, I think is a process that is potentially a prophetic process. And I think it's a process that every pastor and every Christian in some sense should be doing is trying to analyze the culture around you. And so I think there's just a natural process. You know, in my research for my PhD in South Africa and work, I didn't set out to try to analyze a Christian perspective on it directly. But one of the things I've found is, well, the people who say that they're living the good life currently very often describe how faith is a part of that. And so, you know, as we study the world and how it works, I think it's inevitable that we will come upon questions of what are Christians doing? What is the outworkings of the the faith that we're living? Well, that's really helpful. Anything else that you'd like to say about the book? Um, I have one last question just around your kind of future research interests, but anything else about what you wrote and how you hope this book will be helpful? I'll say one more thing about this topic of opportunity. There are these anthropologists, Victor and Edith Turner, who are Catholic, and you can find little snatches of that in their writing. They're really interested in ritual, and they're famous for writing about rites of passage. And a lot of people, actually during the pandemic, there were all these articles coming out about rites of passage and liminality. So their idea is that in the middle of a rite of passage, like say a marriage, where you're like going from a state of being not married to married, you have this middle section that's full of kind of energy. And it's a weird time in life. Like you're dressed in these funny outfits and you're doing things that you never do in life. But in the middle of that process, there's kind of this potential for things to happen. And often one of the things that happens is unity. And they have this word for it, communitas, where uh, historically too, like if you look at rites of passage in say, um, like in South Africa, when people are, when young men used to be circumcised or Uh, young women have these rites of passage, often you're with a community and there's this kind of bonding that happens with other people in your cohort. And Victor and Edith Turner, their brilliant thing they noticed is this doesn't just happen in the middle of a rite of passage, like a wedding ceremony where we're all dancing together. It happens in all kinds of other situations where we're in in betweens, the betwixt and the between, they call it famously. And this pandemic, I think, threw us into a sense of liminality like the in-between. It literally comes from the word of like a doorway where you're standing in the the lintel, the halfway into the the outside-inside place. And they saw all this beauty there. And uh, it was remarkable because earlier social scientists had not necessarily seen beauty there. You have people like uh, Emil Durkheim who was analyzing industrialization. And he also saw... You know, what was happening as society was in this big transition time. But he saw something he called anime, which was like normlessness, rulelessness. And he's looking at statistics of like suicide on the rise and uh, divorce and, you know, all these sort of problems that arise in these crisis moments. And Victor and Edith Turner see possibility and beauty and insight um, and unity 
And I think neither one is really wrong or right. Like they both can happen. And that's where the opportunity is, is we had things like, if you remember uh, the, the YouTube sensation of like some good news, you know, we, we wanted to watch these stories of like people coming together and like crying together in the hospital and laughing and giving presents and, you know, all these happy, happy things that were I remember happening. the recording artists, a lot of the recording artists doing the live studio. Totally. And, yeah. and that was a big thing early on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So, and, and it's not just those kind of superficial things, but I, I know people who would say, you know, my life was dramatically transformed for the better in this last year. Definitely lots and lots of hard things, and I don't want to paper that over. But at the same time, you know, we had, like in Madison, we had this uh, Black History for a New Day course that I, I don't know what, but thousands some people, you know, took that course. There were things that happened in this crisis that couldn't have happened otherwise that I don't want to say they weren't hard, but I think there's goodness that can come out of that. I skipped over this, and I want to make sure that we, um, I spent some time here. You're on faculty at Wheaton College, and I would love to hear about your emerging research interests. Um, what are you working on? What's, um, what articles do you have in process? Do you have another book that you're working on? Talk to us about your research interests. Well, hot off the press, the newest uh, interest that I have Next year, I'm hoping to be on sabbatical for the fall, and I am starting a research project that's going to look at transformation of white people. Um, What does it look like to have a long-term commitment to racial justice as a white person? And my hope is to talk to leaders of faith communities, especially faith communities of color in Madison and elsewhere in the United States, and hear from them what it looks like from their perspective, and then uh, find some people who are white who've been on this journey for a very long time and hear from them also what their experiences are. And as we do in anthropology, a combination of interviewing and group conversations and also observation. So being in places where these life decisions are unfolding. Thank you, Christine, so much for spending time with us today. This has been a really enjoyable and insightful conversation. Thank you so much. It's been a joy. The Upwards podcast is supported by the Stephen and Laurel Brown Foundation. It is produced at Upper House in Madison, Wisconsin. Music by Micah Baer, audio engineering by Andy Johnson, and graphic design by Madeline Ramsey. Follow us on social media, including Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn with the handle at Upper House UW.